Colossians chapter 2. Um, just before we read it, you remember that we started uh, looking at Colossians a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the things that we saw was that Colossae is a city which is a small city, very close, or 70 miles down the road anyway, from Ephesus, the second largest city in the Roman Empire. So there's Ephesus, there's Colossae. In fact, Colossae is one of three cities very close together. You can just about see them on that map there, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Uh, there they are in, on a slightly expanded map. And uh, of the three, Colossae was probably the least important. Hierapolis was full of the Roman gentry and uh, people who are, were um, movers and shakers in the Roman world. Laodicea was quite wealthy from all of the uh, industry that went on there. Uh, Colossae had been wealthy, but it was losing status. And uh, as we saw last time, it's the only one of the three that's not been excavated. That is Colossae today, a mound uh, in a field somewhere that's never really been excavated, although people have come and poked into it and taken away bits to uh, adorn their own houses. So Colossae was a small church. The letter that's written to them was written at the same time, it would seem, as the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul sent them both out together, probably by the same guy. It might have been Epaphras, who was a full-time worker. There was three towns that were so close together, and uh, he probably delivered both of them. But uh, it carries many of the same ideas as Ephesians, but in a way that suits a small town rather than a big city. Let's read from chapter 2 and verse 1 then, shall we? I want you to know, he says... How much we have been struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now, you've done those verses already, so let's move on to verse 6. So then, if that's my purpose, and if all that I've said already is true, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. 
He's lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human command teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And that's where we're going to leave our reading tonight. There's plenty in that passage to keep us occupied for half an hour or so. So, last time I was with you, we talked about uh, chapter 1 and the way in which it consisted, first of all, Paul's prayer for the Colossians, because this is what the whole letter is built on. The things that Paul wants to see building in these lives of the new Christians that there are in Colossae, despite the fact that the people coming in amongst them who are false teachers, who are giving them all sorts of wrong ideas. Paul says, this is what I'm praying for for you. This is the aim. And then we saw that there was the poem in chapter one as well, a little poem which talks about Jesus and puts him at the center of everything. His name is wonderful. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And we unpacked a, a little bit and saw how central this is to what Paul wants to say in this, this letter. Because he's talking about the fact that Jesus is not just an angel. He's not just a supernatural influence or a guru or something like that. Christianity is not a therapy or a recipe amongst many others. Jesus is the center of God's universe. And it's in Jesus that everything, the human creation, the physical creation, the lot, is all going to be brought together. And so that little poem talks first about Jesus' supremacy over the whole of creation, the physical world, and then about Jesus' supremacy in all spiritual matters. And Paul is saying, look, if Jesus is like this, it makes no sense at all for you to go looking for more than Jesus because there is nothing more to come. Jesus is all there is. And he ends the chapter uh, with uh, some verses that we called The Point which was talking about, listen, this is what needs to happen in your lives. So in chapter 2, he starts with saying, this is what I want for you, uh, as we say in, in, in verses 1 to 5. And then he starts on what is really the main argument of the letter. You see, it divides into three bits, really. And we'll leave that bit because we did all that before. Yes, I don't think we need to talk about all that. And uh, in the first part, already he's spoken about who Jesus is and who these Colossians are now that they've become Christians. They have an awesome place in God's creation because God has done something in them, which even though they live in small town Turkey, is a massive, massive thing. And it's taken them into supernatural realms way beyond anything they could have dreamt before. So they don't need to be worried about teachers who come in saying, well, you guys, you know, you've got the basics of spirituality here, but we can teach you much more. For a very small fee, you can take my course, you can come on my weekend, you can do a correspondence course, and I will teach you how to advance from this basic Christian level to real knowledge. And uh, you don't need to be worried about that, says Paul, because this is who Jesus is, this is who you are. Now, he wants to end the letter, too, by talking about how you live out this new identity that you have in Jesus. And he starts on that somewhere about the middle of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 12 is what I've said there. And right through to the end, he's saying, this is how you do it. Wives, this is how you do it. Husbands, this is how you do it. Employers, slaves. And he talks about the way in which everybody has to live in a new way 
if they're Christians. It is not enough to say you believe in Jesus and live just the same way that you did. If you really have had something so wonderful happen to you through the one person in creation who can make it happen to you, then your life has to alter as a result. So in the middle, it's very interesting. He is the real argument that connects those sections. <laughs> you see, that first bit and the last bit are more or less just a series of statements. This is how it is. This is the way things are. And he's saying those things because he knows they can't really argue with them. In that middle section, you find the same word used six different times. It's a little Greek word, un, O-U-N, which means therefore. And as somebody once said, if you're reading the Bible and you come across the word therefore, the first thing you should do is work out what it's there for. And therefore comes up six times because in that middle bit, he's saying, okay, if what we've said in chapters one and, and the first part of chapter two is true, therefore this follows, therefore this follows, therefore this follows, therefore this follows, and he creates a bridge with his argument that gets you into chapter four where he can say again, this is how it is, this is how you ought to behave. So here are the places where it comes up in chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus, that's the start of the bit we read, you remember? That's that little word, und, very small word. comes 502 tombs in the New Testament, actually. But uh, uh, in most languages, it's much less than this. In Romans, which we're looking at this morning, you will not be surprised it comes up 48 times because that's all argument. But uh, in, in, in the letters, it's much less commonly used. And in Colossians, for it appeared six times just in those two chapters, is, it's a signal to the fact that he's got a really capable argument that he wants to pile one step on top of another to find his way through so that you reach chapter 4 and you see how you've got to live. So, so that's the first one. Then chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by uh, what you eat, drink, or do. Uh, and in 2.20, since then, again, you died with Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Put to death, therefore, is chapter 3, verse 5. And the final is 3.12, which says, therefore, as God's chosen people. And that's the final stage in his arguments. So now you can let rip through to the end of the, the, the letter. So you see how this very careful argument is put forward step by step through that middle section. And we've got three of those in our reading tonight. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. And since then, you died with Christ. Here's what you ought to do. So let's look at those uh, three bits where he says, if all of this is true, then, and see what follows. Number one, then, is right at the start. If all of this is true, then, he says, you have received Jesus already. You know that the Son of God come to your life. And we've been saying he's not just an angel. He's not just somebody whom God approved of. He is the center of God's universe. He's the one missing piece of the jigsaw that enables God to put the whole of his creation back together again the way it's supposed to be. If then you have received Jesus like that, then the way you receive him is still the way you ought to walk in him. It says... Um, in my translation here, so you should continue to live in him. But in Greek, it's the word walk that's used. And that's a good picture, isn't it, of the way that we do live our lives. As you walk around, you've got to make some decisions. Whoops, I'm going to bump into a lamppost here. Oh, I better avoid that dog. And you have to take steps, literally, <laughs> to avoid problems in life. So walking is what we do day by day as we follow Jesus. We take decisions. We decide what to do. 
We look at alternatives and we think, that is a Christian thing to do. What would Jesus do? I'll do that. And so we walk on him. We have the power to live our Christian life in just the same way that we received our salvation in the first place. Now, how's that? That, says Paul, is by faith, by believing God, by allowing him to give us something we could never do for ourselves. You could never save yourself. You could never make yourself right with God. And in just the same way, says Paul, you can never make yourself able to live the Christian life. You try it on your own, you'll last maybe half an hour, if you're very, very good. You need a power for living the Christian life, which doesn't come from yourself. And he says, tell you another thing, it doesn't come from any of these spells and incantations and fancy recipes and feasts and special days and special foods and things that these false teachers are telling you about. That is useless. And you'll see how he ends the passage by saying, these things are worthless in terms of inhibiting sensual indulgence. You'll be just the same rotten, uh, tempted person that you were. You start with at the end of going through all of that lot. The only thing that makes a difference is walking in Jesus the way you received him. When you became a Christian, maybe you thought, that's it. That's all there is. I just have to invite him in, and that changes me from death to life, from hell to heaven. That's it. No fanfares of trumpets in the skies, no angels singing in 86-part harmony, none of that. It's very, very simple becoming a Christian, isn't it? And Paul says, as you've received Jesus, so walk in him. <laughs> Something simple, invisible, unseen happens inside your heart. And day by day, that same miracle is repeated as God gives you the strength through the presence of the Holy Spirit to live in his power through the day. As you receive Jesus, so walk in him. That's the first thing he wants to say. And then there's a little verse that uh, gives you a thumbnail sketch of what that's supposed to look like. Um, Rooted and built up in says verse 7. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Let's just uh, unpack that a little bit. It's as if your life is like a building that's being built. You're being built up in him. But it's a funny building because it's also rooted in him. <laughs> So there are two metaphors going on there at the same time, isn't there? You're a plant that's growing because you've got roots, but you're also a building that's being added to and built up. And uh, that's uh, using the same metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians. Do you remember the verse that says, you are God's field, God's building project? Now, I don't know how you can be a field and a building project at the same time, but Paul finds those two metaphors very useful because growing like a plant is the way that the Christian life goes, isn't it? It's not something that goes step by step by step as you have one more weird experience after another. It's something that comes to you naturally, invisibly, as the power of God gets a grip on your life and starts to change you. But also, you're being built. <laughs> you're being built at the same time into a new you by the deliberate action of God. So it's invisible like a plant growing, but at the same time, somebody's behind it. It's not just growing by itself. God is deliberately shaping the events of your life, organizing the encounters you have, the thoughts you have from the books you read and things like that, so he can build you into the kind of person who is aware of what he ought to be or she ought to be and is starting to grow in that way. God is deliberately shaping your life even as it naturally grows. So those two things are together. And so Paul says the first thing is you've got to be rooted in Jesus. That's got to continue. Those are your roots. That's where your nourishment comes from. Go back to him again and again. Rejoice in him. Worship him. Learn all you can of what he says and what it actually means. Build your roots deep into Jesus. 
At the same time, be built up in him. And uh, just as you're rooted in Jesus, and that's where your spiritual nourishment comes from, so you face the challenges of life with increasing equipment because God equips you to handle more and more situations. Sometimes even the worst things that happen to us give us more equipment for handling those kinds of things in the future. I guess if I've developed any pastoral skill in my life at all, and it's still pretty minimal, it comes from the bad times I've been through. It comes from the times when I've got it wrong. And God has said, not that way, John, this way. And by going through those times and having those hurtful experiences, sometimes embarrassing experiences, I'm able to advise and help other people. I'm being built into something a little bit more wise than I was to start with. So you're rooted and your roots go down and you're built and the building goes up. But that's not all. There's a third thing. You're strengthened in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. You've already been taught the, the faith, says Paul. You don't need to buy any more Christian paperbacks. You've got the roots of it. But go on learning. Because what's happening is that faith is strengthening you internally. And if you go up and your roots go down, in you as well there is a stronger person coming because that is what Jesus is doing to you. And the fourth thing is important. Overflowing with thankfulness. Because as you look back on what Jesus has done for you and the way he's taking you forward from one thing to another, the more you notice the more confidence you have to go on. And so your thankfulness goes backwards. And so it goes in all directions, doesn't it? Rooted down, built up, strengthened inside, and overflowing with thankfulness as you look back. <laughs> and all of those things, he says, are there in Christ. It's a complicated picture. This is what Jesus does for you. You don't need any more than this. You don't need any more of a diagram than that, do you? Because this is all the stuff that Jesus is doing in every direction to make your life different already. Some days it may not feel very special, but he's at work in you. And the more you cooperate with this process, rooted down, building up, strengthened inside, all that stuff, the more you will find you've got what you really need. Now, Paul goes on to talk to uh, people in Colossae who may just have got this wrong and have become fascinated by the idea that there's more to come. Who've been talking to people who've been coming in and saying, yes, well, this, this Jesus stuff is already, it's pretty good because you're no longer pagans, you Colossians. No, you understand a little bit about the spiritual world. You don't worship Zeus and Apollo and those <laughs> pathetic excuses for gods any longer. But you know, Jesus is just one of many, many spiritual forces that you can bring into your life that will change everything. And uh, we can tell you, for some money, of course, for a little bit of support, we can tell you about uh, so many more. And Paul says in the next few verses, it seems to me, look where you've come from. Look what God's already done for you. Second, look at what Jesus did for you. Because it's wonderful, it's cataclysmic, it's earth-shaking. There's nothing bigger than that. And third, look at where you are now. And that seems to me to be verse 8 and verses 9 to 12 and in verses 13 to 15. Let's look at verse 8. Okay, see to it that no one takes you captive, he says, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. He's not knocking all philosophy. Paul knew a lot about philosophy. He understood some of the Greek philosophies. He was able to argue with them, and he was able to argue with them because he'd read them and understood them. He's not here saying that all oh, philosophy is useless, worldly learning, there's no place or whatever, but he's talking about philosophy which depends on human tradition. Ideas which simply come from boring, stale ideas that have got no touch of God about them. 
that don't come from God's revelation to his creation, but are just wandering around in the dark saying, I think life is like this, I think this is how we ought to behave. And Paul says, don't be fooled by that sort of stuff. It depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. What does he mean by the basic principles of this world? Well, most commentators say that what he's talking about here is the sort of things he's going to be talking about later on. Observing special days, eating special foods, doing special things, saying, don't touch this, it's too holy. Don't handle this because it can only be handed on the, handled on the 25th of the month when the moon is full or something like that. All of that sort of stuff. Things find holiness in the natural world. Paul says it's not there. God's physical world is great. Everything created by God is to be received with thanksgiving. You can't make part of it so holy it can't be touched. And part of it so holy it can't be tasty. It's not like that. And so he says, watch any philosophy that depends on the basic principles of this world. He says, look where you've come from. That was where many of you were. You were following uh, mirages, chasing shadows. You were involved in ideas that will lead you nowhere. Don't do that any longer. Don't slip back into the same trap. Sadly, that's possible, isn't it? I was really saddened over the last couple of weeks to read uh, some articles written by a girl who is one of the leading um, left-wing commentators in American media. I won't identify her. But she grew up in an atheist family with no time for God whatsoever. And then she got amazingly converted when somebody who she was going out with I'm serious, I love you, but I'm, I'm serious about you, but I won't take it any further unless you become a Christian. And she said, what? And she said, well, why don't you come to church with me? And the church that he took her to was Timothy Keller's church in New York City. And there over a period of six months, she kept coming back and she, and she said, I, I don't know why I kept coming back. And something kept drawing me back. And bit by bit over those six months, her atheist defenses were just eroded. And she started to see the case for Jesus to the point where she, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And the whole tenor of her work changed. And it was fantastic. And her, and her conversion story is a remarkable story, which I've quoted a few times in my preaching. But the articles I've seen over this last week, sadly, have been saying things like, I still honour the Bible, but I don't read it very, very much anymore. I've discovered there are other spiritualities that need to be taken equally seriously. And she's moved on from Jesus, as she sees it, into something wider and bigger. And it's such a shame because she's lost the one thing. It seems to me that would have made everything make sense in her life. I just hope she gets back there. But for the moment, she's wandering off in all sorts of different directions and it's just not working for her. And so Paul says, the important thing is not to be taken captive again the sort of hollow, deceptive philosophies you followed in the past. Then he says in verse 9 to 12, look at what Jesus has already done for you. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, we saw that verse fullness back in chapter 1, if you remember, that word fullness. And we said that this is the Greek word pleroma, which was used technically in those days by the people who were coming up with these false ideas to say, you know, Jesus is one of many spiritual forces but there is a pleroma, there is a fullness. And if you're going to be a real spiritual person, you must get the pleroma. And so you get the lot. You remember we spoke a bit about the New Age from the 1980s onwards, which was saying much the same thing. 
all the festivals of mind, body, and spirit, where you could do lots of things at different booths, everything from rebirthing to talking to white wages to rediscovering the lost planet Atlantis, all of that sort of stuff. It all belonged in together, and it was all good, because it was all spiritual. And uh, Paul is saying, this is, this is absolute rubbish. And Jesus is the fullness and that's why in chapter 1 he's already said uh, that uh, God was pleased in him to have all his fullness dwell. Now he says, in Christ all the fullness of the deity belongs in godly form and you have been given fullness in Christ. So this is the word fullness from chapter 1. And uh, it's in complete opposition. You remember we saw some of these pictures as well about the, the New Age festivals and things like that, where people try to put charts of the pleroma together and help you understand that there's much, much more than Jesus. It's all basically a load of rubbish, says Paul. And he says that certain things have happened to you that have taken you uh, already into fullness in Christ. Now, this idea that there's more to come can be a temptation to Christians too, can't it? Because it's easy when you're just growing up in the faith to think, am I missing something? Is there more than I've got already? And I've met people who think, if only I can speak in tongues, I'll be a super Christian. Now, I'm not knocking the gift of tongues, but if you read what Paul says about it, it is not the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. It is not the key to power and triumph and success. Are there other people who would say, if I can get the gift of prophecy, then I'll be a super Christian? Well, there were lots of prophets in the church at Corinth. And sometimes they disagreed with anyone. And the gift of prophecy is an important uh, gift for the church to have. But it doesn't turn you into a super-Christian. Some people think, think the ascetic life, if I can live really sacrificially, I'll be a super-Christian. I won't eat for the next six weeks and that will make me really holy. It doesn't. It just makes you hungry. There are other people, if I can imitate the Puritans, I'll be a super-Christian. So they read all of the documents from the 17th century that they can. They start speaking an old-fashioned kind of English, and they start getting concerned about the kinds of things that previous generations did. And I've put the Puritans down there, but there are all sorts of people who are imitating the past in different ways uh, and, and trying to go back to a kind of spirituality of centuries ago, not necessarily just this one. And they're looking for something more. If I can have something more... And I will be a super-Christian. There is no easy way with being a super-Christian. There really is not. And Paul says, look at what's happened to you already. You have been given fullness in Christ. It's already happened to you, that. What does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that you've received everything you're going to get spiritually in the whole of your lifetime. No, it doesn't mean that. God still has more to put into you than you've got yet. It doesn't mean either that you have become, like Christ, the fullness of God, so that you are now God yourself. People in the New Age think that. There's a very famous film of uh, Shirley MacLaine, the, 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 the actress who's a New Age teacher, standing on the beach in Malibu in California with her arms raised while her own spiritual teacher and advisor is standing next to her, and the two of them are chanting, I am God, I am God, I am God. Whatever Paul's saying, he's not saying that. <laughs> so what is he saying? Well, he says that because Christ is in you, and because Christ is all of the fullness of God, all of the fullness of God has come to your life. So in every situation where you are, Christ, the fullness of God, will give you everything you need to cope with it. He's fullness, you're not. It means it's not under your control. And you will often find yourself getting into situations where you think, now what, God? <laughs> I'm out of my comfort zone here. And I'm at the end of my rope. What do I do here? I really don't know. 
And Jesus, out of his fullness, will supply just exactly what you need. You cannot be destroyed in any situation you get into as long as Christ, the fullness of God, is there in you. And you've been given fullness, the ability to cope with every situation that God's providence puts you into because you have him with you. You've been given fullness. Then he says another interesting thing, which must have made the Colossians think, what? He says, you've been circumcised. How have they been circumcised? Lots of these guys in, in, in Colossae are Greeks and they have never been circumcised in their life and they're rather hoping that being a Christian means that you don't have to have that much pain. <laughs> and uh, Paul is saying, you've already been circumcised, relax. What does that mean? Well, he's, he, he makes it clear, doesn't he, in the verse. You were also circumcised in putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. And he talks a lot more about this in Galatians, as we saw a couple of New Testament books back, if you remember. And uh, circumcision is not a matter just of cutting away bits of your body. It's a matter of separating yourself finally and totally from something that has no claim on your life any longer. And he says, you, 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 the putting off of the sin's nature is what it's about. And the word putting off really means taking off your clothes at night before you go to bed dropping them in the laundry, saying, these are dirty, I will not be wearing these anymore. And that's what Paul says has happened. When you became a Christian, you committed yourself to living in the power of God in a new way. You've taken off an old lifestyle. You're not going to live there anymore. And so Jesus has already done that for you. He's given you the ability increasingly to live in a way that reflects his glory rather than reflects your sinfulness. That being the case, You've been circumcised. Third thing is you've been buried and raised. And he talks about their baptism. You've all been baptized, haven't you? Well, you were baptized, buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Camp a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about baptism and saying, what is baptism really all about? And we get, had a little picture on the screen of somebody going into the water. And we said, that is a symbol of death. When you go into the water, that's a symbol that you're dying with Christ. And then you lay flat right over under the water. You're being buried with Christ. And then unless there is a ghastly mistake, you come out the other side. And that's rising again to walk in newness of life in Christ. Yes, I know. Sometimes it does happen. When I get baptized, I was baptized by an old brethren elder who didn't believe you were properly baptized unless every millimeter of your body surface had gone beneath and I was just coming up gasping for air. He, he saw a bit that he'd, he'd missed, so down I went again. again. Oh, whew, I tell you, I nearly died with Christ that night. But anyhow, um, that's what baptism is about. He says, you've, you've, you, you, in your baptism, you've symbolized that. You've died to an old life, and you've been raised to walk in a new life. The power of the new life is in you. It's expressing itself more all the time. The more you say yes to Jesus and live his way. So all of these things have already happened. Look at what Jesus did for you. And then there's a third thing he said, which is, Look where you are now. And this is verses 13 to 15. Um, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, before God did those things to you, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's as if you had a bill to pay. Because in those days, a bill was paid. They'd take the piece of paper on which the bill was written out, and when the invoice had been satisfied, they didn't rubber stamp it, as they sometimes do nowadays. Instead, they would take it and nail it to the doorpost. And so God took 
the handwriting of that was against us, the list of the, the, the laws that we had broken, all of the things we got wrong that separated us from him. He took it, it to the way, it says. He didn't let it affect the argument anymore as far as our relation to him was concerned. And he nailed it to the cross of Christ. And that's a picture that um, comes from those days. Paul immediately goes on to another one. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What actually happened on the cross, says Paul, was not just that a man died in horrible agony. What happened was that all the powers of hell thought they had triumphed over Jesus and they came to do their worst and they found to their absolute horror that Jesus vanquished them all. And on the cross he struggled with his enemies and overcame them by his own death. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says that if the rulers of this present age, and that probably means both the physical rulers and the spiritual rulers, if the rulers of this present age had realized what the cross was going to do, they would never have put Christ on the cross because what was supposed to be defeat became an absolute triumph. And here's the picture of those days. In the, those days when a Roman uh, general had a great triumph, what he would do was strip off the armor of uh, his opponents who were defeated He'd uh, lead them into the city in a triumphal procession, and they would go before his chariot, disarmed, publicly uh, uh, there as a spectacle, with everybody booing and jeering and seeing that these people would never be an enemy again. And so what Paul is saying here is something's happened to us. This is a picture uh, that you'll find in many places on the internet. It's designed to show just how small you are. I like it because it shows you just exactly where we are in the universe. But Paul says, despite the fact you're that size and you're that insignificant, God has done these things to you. He's brought you from death to life. You were dead in the uncircumcision and the sins that you committed, and God made, brought you to life in Christ. You've come from debt to forgiveness. God's taken that bill that was against your name and hammered it to the cross, paid, settled, finished forever. And you came from defeat to victory. Uh, all of your enemies, all of the powers of this present age that stand against you are defenseless. They cannot harm you now. Oh, they're still dangerous, just as those enemies of a Roman conqueror in their chains led into the city were dangerous. If they could break away and get a sword, they could still do some damage. And so the powers are still around to hurt you, but they cannot defeat you because Jesus has defeated them through the cross. So then you get the next two, two bits, therefore and therefore. Let's deal with them very, very quickly because the main part of the argument, I think, has been in those verses we've read. So second, if all of this is true, then Paul says this, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. There are lots of people coming into Colossae saying, well, if you're going to be a real follower of Jesus, you've got to remember that Jesus was a Jew. And he went to the synagogue. So you've got to go to the synagogue. And Jesus was circumcised, so you've got to be circumcised. And uh, Jesus uh, obeyed the Jewish food regulations, and so you have to do that too. And so they're trying to load rules and regulations back on the lines of these Colossians that are actually all done with. They're just a shadow of what was to come. They were all leading forward to and pointing to Jesus. And it's not that his followers have to do these things any longer, because in Jesus, they've got it all. Don't let others judge you, he says. It's funny how judged we can feel, though, when other people try to be super spiritual. Sometimes we can be judged by our own background, can't we? 
I remember the first, the, the only time actually, I ever went to a first division football match. It was Liverpool versus Wolves. And it was when my Liverpool-based girlfriend had just broken up with me the same day. And I was feeling so, so uh, hurt by the whole thing. I thought, I can't get the bus back down south and for another five hours, what will I do? I'll go and watch Liverpool at Anfield. And I'm glad that I did. I saw Emily Hughes, I saw John Barnes. You know, I, uh, for Wolves, it was Jim Murray. None of these names mean anything to anybody any longer. But I was one of the great Liverpool teams and I, I was really pleased to have been there. But you know what? As a good brethren boy, walking into Anfield, as I paid my money, got the ticket, went through the turnstiles, I found, I suddenly felt incredibly guilty. What am I doing here? Now, I knew in my head, I'd worked it out years before, it's all right for a Christian to go to a football match. But back in Scotland, you did not do that kind of thing, and you weren't a proper Christian if you did. And I wasn't prepared for the, the sense of guilt I had. So one part of mine was saying, it's all right, it's okay, go on up there, just don't let them mug you. And the other part of me was saying, you should not be here, you should be in a prayer meeting or something. And as I say, I'm quite glad I did see quite a good game, Liverpool 2, Wolves 2, but the, the sense of guilt was just <coughs> tremendous. And it's possible for people to play with our sense of guilt and inadequacy and judge us. And Paul says, don't let it happen. You're free in Christ. As long as you're following Jesus with a good conscience, don't let anybody else tell you what you ought to be doing. Then he says, don't let others distract you. There are people who um, uh, delight in false humility and the worship of angels. They claim to have visions. They go into great detail about what they've, they've seen. And although they sound very humble, actually they're super conceited. They love the sound of their own voice. They love talking about what's happened to them and, and letting you know uh, how much more spiritual they are than you. And you could be so impressed and think, oh, they're so holy. They know so many things that I don't. Oh, wow. Don't be fooled, says Paul. Don't let them distract you from the way they're going. Because if they are going to try to take you away from what we've already seen, going on in Jesus the way you started, then they are wrong, wrong, wrong. And you don't need to be distracted by them. Then you've got the third thing at the end of the chapter. And with this I will finish before people start throwing rocks at me. Um, and this is uh, from the, the last few verses, from verse 20 onwards. Since, un, that word again, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, we've established all of this in our argument so far, haven't we? He says... Why, as though you still belong to it, do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he says, you know, these rules that people try to put into your lives, they're all destined to perish with use. <laughs> you know, things can seem very holy for a while. And then they lose their atmosphere of awe. You go to the British Museum, you'll see so, all sorts of objects in glass cases that used to be worshipped. They used to be in temples of all sorts of religions around the world. People would only see them on special occasions. And they'd almost feel when they did see them the, the supernatural waves of power that came off them. And now you've got school groups going, oh, there's an ugly one, oh, don't fancy that one. And the, the atmosphere of spirituality has gone completely. I was at Tisern Abbey earlier on this week. We've been up in Wales, um, as I mentioned this morning. And uh, we went into this old crumbling abbey, which is a fantastic work of architecture. I remember walking from the bit where the lay... Uh, brothers were allowed in into the bit where only the top clergy were allowed and it felt no different whatsoever it was just a crumbled building there was no aura of sanctity there was no feeling of anything about it and this is what Paul means those things that people attach enormous value to are destined to perish with the using 
They'll have they get this feeling going in people for a while, but in the end they'll all go away. The only thing you can hold on to is what you've got in Jesus. And so he says, such regulations are not the heart of the matter. Don't live your life by man rules for two reasons. First of all, he says they're going to perish anyway. And then second, as we've seen, he says, they're not going to make you any better. You lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You think they're going to give you superpowers? They're going to make you spiritually so fit and keen and disciplined you'll be able to forget it. There is no royal route. There is no shortcut way to true spirituality. What you have to do is carry on the way you've started, learning a little bit more of Jesus day by day as you go. And God will, by himself, through the power of his Holy Spirit, put your roots down deeper, build your life up higher, strengthen you inside, and make you overflow with thankfulness. And that's the only way to go. Steve.